In Matthew's Gospel, at verse 18 of the first chapter, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee married thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice the angel told him to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then in the passage we just read, Luke chapter 2 at verse 10, the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. At the risk of getting into big trouble, the title of this little sermon is called Merry Christmas because there is none that doeth good. No, not one. You know, here was the angel announcing to Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sin and announcing to the shepherds that a Savior had been born who is Christ the Lord. That is Messiah, the long-promised Lord Jesus. And yet these people, the shepherds and Joseph, and all the rest of them hardly grasped the magnitude of the gift of Christ to them in those days. They thought perhaps He would save them from the Romans. Or maybe He would save them from the corruption of their own leaders. But no, the promise was that He would save us from our sin, not the sin of the people across the street, down the road in that next village, or around the world all those wicked people that we want to be saved from, not their sin, our sin, our own sin, He would save us from our own sin. And we hardly know how bad our sin is or how pervasive or how damning it is. We think that we're pretty decent people. We know people that are far worse than us. We admit that we sin and we know that we slip up and make mistakes, but on the whole... We're a decent lot. And we thank the Lord like the Pharisee did, that He's not like these other people, like that tax collector over there. And we can list all sorts of good things we do. And we know that our heart is right to do what is good. It's just that sometimes we're tempted beyond our measure. But you know, if you really want to know, if you really want to start to understand how bad our sin is and how pervasive it is, and Read this little part of the law, Deuteronomy 6 at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might, 
And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And we just roar over those words, but think of what it says. The command is to love thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And the truth of it is, none of us do that. We didn't do it when we were lost. We don't even do it as believers trusting in Jesus. Not in our own proper persons, that is. None of us love the Lord with all our heart. There's always something that comes and butts Him out of the way, doesn't it? And none of us love the Lord with all our soul or with all our might, really. Think of what slackers and how lazy we are even when it comes to taking care of our own stuff, much less pursuing after the work of the Lord. And yet this one commandment, of course, is the one that kills us all if only we would understand it. And then at the end of this same chapter, the door to hell slams shut behind us at verse 25. It shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He hath commanded us. And of course, it takes until the Apostle Paul to fully work out the fact that nobody keeps the law. Everyone's condemned by the law. And so therefore, the law is not our righteousness. It could be if only we could keep it. But we can't. Why? Because we're lost sinners. Because we have that old sin nature. Because Adam fell and we inherited his bent towards wickedness and disobedience. And so there is no righteousness in keeping the law. And that means there's only the judgment and the curse of the broken law. Now Jesus reiterates this law at least three times in His ministry. At Matthew 22 at verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that He had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves. Then one of them which was a lawyer asked Him a question, tempting Him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? So the Lord Jesus reiterates that this is the chief law. This is the main law. All the other laws follow after it. Because if we would only love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, bodies, strength, then everything else would follow. You see, the rest of the law is, is simple to keep once we get past that one. But nobody gets past that one. And then in Luke 10 at verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He saith unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do and live. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Notice he asked the easy question. The real hard part was the first part, but he just assumed that he was complying with the perfect love of God with his whole being, when of course he wasn't, was evidenced by the fact that he wanted to wriggle out of the lesser of the laws, love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Finally, in Mark 12, at verse 28, one of the scribes came having heard them reasoning together, perceiving he had answered them well, that is, Christ had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered discreetly. He said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any more questions. So Christ reiterates this chief and first and highest law of God, which, in fact, none of us can keep. And then Christ slams the same door to hell behind lost men and their so-called works of righteousness at Matthew 5, at verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now Paul pounds this nail into our coffin further. We read Romans 1, a good portion of it, but consider verse 18-21. through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now what he's saying there is the, the world around us and what we see and what we observe prove that God is all-powerful, that He made all things, and leaves every man without an excuse. So when people say, well, I don't believe there's a God, well, they're, they're lying. They know there's a God, they just hate it. And they want to pretend like there's not one so they won't be accountable to Him for their crimes. But look at what it says. Because that when they knew God, everyone knows God according to this text of Scripture in this limited way from nature. But when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So, this chapter goes on to list a bunch of vile sins. But here's the first one. They didn't glorify God and they weren't thankful. Well, who is perfect in glorifying God and who is perfect in thanksgiving? We preached on thanksgiving several weeks ago a couple of times. And none of us are thankful in everything to God. We're told to be. But how often we fail. Much less... Wicked men, unregenerate men, who know God because He's declared in what they see around them, and yet they do not glorify Him as God and they're not thankful. And all the rest of the crimes listed later flow from that. Romans 3, 
The Bible teaches us as it is written at verse 10 of Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things serve the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, Paul is just such an extremist, isn't he? None that doeth good, none that seeketh after. And believe you me, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians even, false teachers, who don't believe the truth of those statements. Oh yeah, there are some people that seek after God with their own libertarian free will. They do all, all the time. It's their choice. They do, some do, some don't. But Paul is very unambiguous. He takes Old Testament texts that might be argued to apply only to the very wicked, and here he applies them to all men universally. So you see, we're in very deep trouble as lost people, as unsaved people. Nothing we do is good, and we don't fear God, and we don't glorify Him as God, and we're not thankful to Him, and we don't love Him, with all our hearts, minds, body, or strength. Now this has a consequence, practical consequence that really, really causes grief amongst certain people. Proverbs 21, verse 4 says this, And high look and a proud heart. Those are terrible things, aren't they? We know they're sin. And the plowing of the wicked is sin. You mean going to work? Doing an honorable good day's work, working hard to feed your family is sin? That's an atrocity. Well, why is that? Well, it's because it's not done in perfect love to God. It's not done in the fear of the Lord. It's not done to glorify God. It's not done in perfect thankfulness to God. Nothing we do in our unregenerate selves is not sin. Well, that can't be. We can either decide to do this or not to do that. Well, whichever way it is, it's still a sin. The plowing of the wicked is sin. If he stays at home and lies around in bed and doesn't do his work and doesn't feed his family, that's sin too. The Scriptures make it clear that all of our pretenses at being good and doing good and doing well, they all dash on the rocks of the law which says that we must glorify God in everything, love Him perfectly in everything, Fear Him in everything. Trust in Him in everything. Glorify Him in everything. There's a practical consequence there, you see. Is that the ordinary things we assume are good and wholesome are actually sin. And then look at Hebrews 11. Without faith it is impossible to please God. So anybody that's lost and hadn't trusted in the Lord says that it's impossible for anybody like that to please Him. Romans 14 at verse 23 says that whatever is done without faith is a sin. Now it has a practical application in that context with regard to doing doubtful things and not being convinced 
that they're proper and lawful, but it has a general application. John Piper wrote, All things are sin for the unbeliever. The third and final implication of Romans 14.23 is a warning for those who have not sought Christ for forgiveness or placed their hope in Him. If there are any among you like this, do not say to yourself, My sins are slight or my sins are few. For according to Romans 14.23, everything you do is sin. If you're not trusting Christ for forgiveness and are not resting in His daily work on your behalf, then none of your actions comes from faith. But every one of them, even the most noble, is sinful and an insult to the infinitely trustworthy God. And I hope if you have not received Christ with all His forgiveness and all His hope, that this week you will not be able to shake loose the thought that everything you do is sinful in God's eyes. For whatever does not come from faith is sin. And then look at what Isaiah said in olden times. Chapter 64 at verse 5, Thou meetest him that rejoicest and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wrath, for we have sinned in those his continuance, and we shall be saved, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now, King David traced the fault in him all the way back to his birth, even to his conception. In Psalm 51, David wrote this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so here is a early reference to this idea of Adam's fall and the imputation of his fall to us and our birth in sin, our conception in sin. It starts out bad at birth and conception and we sin and sin whenever we fail to love God perfectly and certainly when we violate His other commandments explicitly as David here had done. This truth was thrust upon me by an interaction with another one of those false teachers that I seem to run into all the time. Men are so pleased with their notion of their free will that they can pick, they can decide whether to do right or to do wrong. And that they're not so lost in sin that they can't do that. We can decide to do good or sin without God's providence pressing upon us one way or the other. Without the work of the Holy Ghost, why we naturally usually pick good things to do, don't we? It's just every once in a while we slip up. One of them used an example. You know, a football punter, he can be really good, but sooner or later he'll miss the goalposts. That's the way we are in our freedom, our libertarian free will, as they like to call it. We can do this all by ourselves, and that's what makes us responsible, you see, because if we couldn't 
do right on our own steam. Why then, God couldn't hold us liable for anything, could He? But Paul says in Romans 9, yes, He does. Stop talking back to God. You're responsible for everything you do. But suddenly this truth flooded on me. In fact, we cannot choose all by ourselves to do good because every act of a lost person is an act of sin against God. Because there's no love of God in what an unregenerate man does, there's no fear of God, there's no faith in God's promises of salvation, no gratefulness to God. There is every act of a sinful man, every act of a lost person is an act of presumption against the mighty, glorious, everlasting, eternal, all-powerful God that made heaven and earth. And that's why it says the plowing of the wicked is sin. So I thought I'd try out this little observation on some libertarian free will people. So I confronted this person that no, by his libertarian free will, he always chooses to sin no matter what he did in his unregenerate situation. And I started out saying this. In fact, every act committed by fallen man is, is itself a sin. In fact, every act committed by fallen man in himself is sin. Only the righteousness of Jesus is true obedience. Well, you would have thought this man's head exploded. He stared back in disbelief and began shouting. He couldn't believe what I was saying. He just couldn't believe. Can you hear yourself talk? Did you read what you just wrote? Etc., etc., etc. He comes back with, you mean if I decide to take a drink of water? That's it? If I decide to love my spouse? If I provide for my family in my unregenerate state? It's sin? I begin to give them quotations from the Scriptures to prove that such a person didn't love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Every act committed by man is sinful unless he's been justified and is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's because there is none that doeth good, no, not one. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. None of us acts with love of God as our prime motive. Anything done without praise to God and thankfulness to God and for the glory of God and any complete love for God is sin. Only in Christ can any action not be sin. Those who are dead in sin cannot do anything morally good. The Scriptures state we are unable to please God or obey His commandments. We must be born again or we will not see the kingdom of God. Everything a lost person does is a sin because it is not done in gratefulness to God. Perfect love of God. Those are part of God's law, which men violate constantly with all their thoughts and actions. Only in Christ do we receive an alien righteousness. That is why lost men are so miserable and hopeless and helpless without the work of the Holy Ghost to make us alive to God. We're doomed because our presumption and ungratefulness and hatred of God. No matter what a man does in his sin, is disobeying God. We're all dead in our sins. and our flesh, nothing good dwells. There's none that does good. There's none that seeks after God. Nobody loves God completely or is thankful to Him completely. We don't see the true sinful condition of man. The sin in our acts at least consists of doing them without loving God fully and being fully thankful. We are unable to. Everything we do in our sin is displeasing to God. We can only please God by the Spirit in Christ. 
Everything we do in the flesh is displeasing to God. They that are of the flesh cannot please God. Yes, man is dead in sin. We cannot obey God or please Him in any way unless we are in Christ. It's not a question of is the action on our list of sins. It's the fact that all actions outside of Christ are done in defiance of God, in hatred of God, in ungratefulness to God. We sin when we do anything apart from a perfect love for God and apart from thankfulness to God, apart from union with Christ. No matter what a lost man does, and in everything he does, he breaks that commandment to love the Lord thy God with everything. There's nothing good or righteous in us. It's the attitude of the heart against God that pollutes every single act, the failure to act in perfect love to God and thankfulness that renders every act a sin. Well, he said he was going to print out what I wrote so he could use it against Christians the next time he debated with them about how totally foolish we all are. But the idea that man is so lost in sin that he cannot please God at all, and in everything there is sin present, polluting all his so-called good deeds, is deeply offensive to man, isn't it? We don't like to think of us that low, that depraved, that in opposition to God. Even as a believer, Paul said in Romans 7 verse 18, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And then in Romans chapter 8, he said this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. That means to be acting in the natural man without the Holy Spirit. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, he's speaking to believers now, but in the Spirit. If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not ours. That righteousness which is by faith from God through Jesus Christ. Paul placed his own righteous deeds, so-called, in their proper place, that is, on the garbage heap in Philippians 3 at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So Paul, you see, he didn't put any stock or credit in his own good deeds, and neither must we. What is the hope for us poor sinners if this be the case, that nothing we do pleases God in our sin, in our folly, in our lostness? Well, David hints at this later in Psalm 51. He cries out at verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. So you see, David is looking for the mercy of God to take away his sin, to blot it out, to have mercy on him. He doesn't specify how God might be able to carry this off. But he understands that in himself is only sin and only oppression and only disobedience against God. And he's subject to wrath, eternal wrath. And he can only cry out for mercy like the poor tax collector in the story Jesus told. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And do you remember what Jesus said? That man went down to his house justified, but not the other man, not the Pharisee, not the good man, the man who was a sinner who cried out for mercy. The Lord declared him to be without fault entirely before him because of grace and ultimately because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. There was a coming Savior, a Redeemer, a Lamb to take away our sins that David barely perceived in some places he wrote of it by the Spirit of Christ. He wrote of Christ's crucifixion. He wrote of Christ's vindication. He even wrote of Christ taking our sins upon Himself and being punished in our place. But there is a coming Savior and He's come already. And that's what we celebrate around this table. But we don't even know how helpless we are to obey God. Some of us are deceived by false doctrines to think that we can do some good ourselves. But the truth is, in our flesh, it's all actually bad. And that offends most people when they hear it. But Jeremiah grasped this to some degree when he described the coming Messiah, the Lord of glory, and declared that His name would be the Lord our righteousness. Here is the solution to our disobedience. First, the sacrifice that takes away sin and satisfies God's justice, which Christ made on the cross. And secondly, that He is our righteousness. In Him, we are counted as righteous. He lays that robe of righteousness upon us so that we are seen as righteous in Christ's righteousness, not in ourselves. Our only hope is not our free will to decide to do what's right or to decide even of our own free will to call on God or to cooperate in goodness with God as some false religions teach. God will make us good and then we will be good and then God will be pleased to save us. No. The Scriptures teach us that our righteous deeds are counted as nothing because they're not righteous in the first place. Only the sacrifice of Christ and His righteousness will avail for our redemption. You see, 
we don't cooperate by making good choices with the goodness of God. We don't mix our works with His grace. Paul said if you do that, you've fallen from grace. People think falling from grace means that you sinned. No, it means that you sinned by adding your good works to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He came to die, the Lord Jesus did, and take away our sin and to satisfy all the law and to clothe us with His righteousness. And so finally this, you know, these men, Joseph and the shepherds and others, you know, they, they knew they had received something good from God, but they hardly could grasp just how good it was, just how good it is, just how good it always will be. They didn't understand, I'm sure, the depths of the depravity from which they needed to be saved. The complete hopelessness of obedience to God in their lostness, in their fallenness, in their folly. And this reminds me of this. At Christmas time or at birthday time or whenever someone gives us a present, we hope that it starts off to be a delightful thing, don't we? There's nothing worse than to get a present that you hate from the very moment you see it. But we smile and try to act like we're thankful and so forth. But presents start out to be delightful, and we see this most in little children. They tear all the paper open, they look at the presents, they run the little trucks back and forth on the floor, and they talk on their walkie-talkies, and they prance around as if they've just received the greatest thing since sliced bread. Most presents start out delightful, but they slowly lose their luster, don't they? Our interest is slowly wanes in our presence. They break. The presents break. They grow boring to us. We're tired of them now. We put them up on the shelf or in the top shelf of the closet. And ultimately, they become useless and unremembered. But it's not so with the Savior. You see, when the angel said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These people only had a hint of how great a gift the Savior is. And when the angel told Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Joseph only had just a tiny glimmer of how great that gift is. And it's left to us, it's left to all the Lord's people, as we believe the Gospel, as we trust in Jesus, as we worship around His table, as we celebrate the Lord's table, as we consider the Scriptures, as we ponder upon our great sin and our hopelessness, and the Lord Jesus being our righteousness. The longer we believe the Gospel, the more we will treasure the Christmas gift of our Savior. The gift grows stronger in our hearts and minds and in our grasp. It never fades. It never grows old. It never breaks. It never will be discarded. But in all of eternity, the beauty and the glory of the gift of Christ as our Lamb, our sacrifice, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Prince will only magnify, will only grow when we discover more and more the hopelessness 
of our lost condition and the grandeur and the greatness and the glory and the joy of what the gift of Christ has done for us. And around this table, we like to celebrate the Lord's death every Lord's Day and be reminded of what it is about His incarnation that was the key point that He offered up His body to be mutilated on the cross as our sacrifice that He shed His precious blood to make atonement for us and to understand that not the bread and the wine, but rather what they picture are the key things. That our whole lives, all of our hope, all of our joy, our eternal bliss come from that very physical body and that very physical blood that the Lord Jesus offered up to make atonement for us to take our sin away. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table, for the bread first that reminds us of His body broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we thank You that even when we were dead in our sins, You made us alive again by grace. You gave us faith by grace and You caused us to call upon You and to trust in Jesus and to believe His promises and to plead His blood, to lay our hands upon His sacred head and cry out, Lord, judge our sins in this Thy dear Son. And You did at Calvary. And now we're set free. And now we only begin to see how lost we were, how hopeless we were, how full of sin and unpleasing to You we were, and what a marvelous miracle it is that You have saved us by the Lord Jesus. We thank You for this bread that He left us to remind us of that body that You clothed Him with so that He might bring many sons to glory by the suffering that He went through when He went to the cross to save us from our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Well, let's stand and sing number 105 in the black book. Number 105, Emmanuel's Land.